Let me see you put them up Reach the sky, touch the stars up above Cause it's one time for the underdog I'm Patrick Medivy, host of ITM, and today I have an author, Jonathan Tapper, who wrote a book called The Missing Link to Modern Day Capitalism, and he got pretty deep. He talked about how Warren Buffett only invests in monopolies, and he explained it in a way that you probably never heard before. Enjoy this interview with Jonathan Tepper. Jonathan, I appreciate you making the time to come down here being with us. Well, thank you so much for having me on. It's a, it's a pleasure and an honor. Yeah, so, so the question I have is, you know, a lot of people wake up uh, uh, in the morning and they say, you know, uh, I'd like to go have a nice cup of coffee. I'd like to have a good breakfast this morning, maybe some bacon and, you know, uh, eggs over medium. I don't know how many people wake up in the morning saying, let me write a book about the myth of capitalism, monopolies, and death of competition. So what inspired you to want to write this book? So th there were uh, two real reasons for writing the book. The first one was a, a professional reason. Um, my day job essentially has been, I started a investment uh, research company, investment strategy, and we look at economic questions. You know, is the U.S. going to have a recession or not? Uh, is inflation going to go up or not? And one of the indicators that we had was a leading indicator for wages. So it tells you, like, are wages going to go up or not over the next year? And our indicator was uh, turning up very strongly, saying that wages were going to go up. But wages you know, have been fairly stagnant and weren't turning up. And at the same time, corporate profit margins were at all-time highs. And our indicators were saying that corporate profit margins were going to be falling. And they weren't. And it really annoys me when one of our tools doesn't work. Um, not necessarily because it doesn't work, but rather if I don't understand why or something's changed, you know, it, it really get, gets to me. So I started doing a lot of research there. And at the same time as that was happening, uh, I would go, you know, I live in London, so I'd go to the pub with my friends, mm -hmm. and, you know, my, my friends are all fairly sort of intellectual and love to read books. And they were saying, like, oh, have you read Piketty's book? And I thought, oh, I haven't, haven't read it. And they, I, I then got a copy, and we were, we were discussing it. Piketty is a French economist who's basically, like, you know, the closest thing to a rock star in, in economics. He sold a million and a half books, which for economics is just crazy. That's sort of like Harry Potter levels. Um, and basically his argument is that capitalism itself has a fundamental flaw and that over time more returns go to capital, so like to shareholders, mm -hmm rather than to laborers or the workers, and that this is just a fundamental law in, in capitalism. To me, this made no sense at all, because if, if you have a very, pro very profitable business and I see that you're making a lot of money, I would want to come in and compete with you and get some of that uh, profit. And that's really the way capitalism actually works. So I thought competition would bring down the returns to capital and increase the returns to labor over time. So as I was looking into this question of why you know, uh, wages weren't going up with our leading indicator, why wages are relatively low, you know, and Piketty shows that the, um, the, the sort of top 1%, top 10% is doing very well, I thought these, these two questions are, are related, and if I can get to the bottom of it, it'll be very interesting. So, so if I can, so what did he say is his alternative? If he's saying that, that it's not working and it's all about the shareholders, What's he suggesting? So he suggests extremely high tax rates to essentially take money from the holders of capital. I know generally, obviously, the people who hold the capital are the, right. are the very wealthy, mm -hmm. and then redistribute it, right? So it's a high tax, um, high re redistribution regime. In my view, that's essentially treating the symptoms rather than the cause. And the cause of the problem uh, through the, the research that I did for the book is that there actually is very little competition. So competition should be eroding the returns to capital, and it's not doing that. And so if you look particularly at the United States, which is one of the most advanced in this trend of what economists call industrial concentration and the average person calls monopolies, 
when you have a monopoly or a duopoly or even an oligopoly, you have very few players, very little competition, and that gives them significant power. It gives them power over their workers, uh, so not to give them a pay raise. Mm -hmm. It gives them power over their suppliers. So if you're selling uh, widgets to a, a big company and they're the only ones that are going to buy your supply, then they have a lot of power in terms of how much are they going to pay you, right? Um, it also gives them tremendous amounts of capital and financing. So you find that some of these very biggest companies, uh, they pay their suppliers very, very late, but they get paid immediately by customers, right? So the working capital or what investors call a float works in their favor. And so there's tremendous power that comes from being uh, the, the monopolist or oligopolist. At the same time, having that power means that it also corrupts the political process because they, of course, don't want competition. And so while some industries are what you could call natural monopolies, so if you think of, for example, uh, Visa, right? You, you want to make sure that the buyers and sellers are on the same platform to get paid and rather than have like 50 payment uh, networks, you know, and not show up at a store and not know whether you can actually use your card or mm -hmm. uh, you know, phone. And so that's like a natural monopoly with very strong network effects. Loads of the industries in the U.S. that are what I call unnatural monopolies are monopolies that come from regulation, from cronyism, and from lobbying. So, you know, you're involved in the insurance industry. If you look at the U.S. healthcare industry um, on the insurance side, almost all the states are essentially dominated by two to three insurance companies. Some, like Hawaii and Alabama, are dominated by one insurance company. You are not going to get a good deal or lower pricing on insurance when you have no choice. And Obamacare, in, in many ways, uh, made that worse. Essentially, it forced everyone to buy insurance, but from and, and, it, and it, uh, basically you had further consolidation on the insurance side. So people then forced to buy into monopolies and oligopolies for, for their healthcare insurance. Um, and you find this in many other industries. And those I would call unnatural, meaning if the laws didn't exist, um, you know, you can sell coke across state lines, but you can't sell insurance across state lines. And so that's what drives up uh, pricing gives market power. And what did you say about Obamacare percentage-wise of GDP that uh, is used in America versus in Europe? What was the number you said? So the, the U.S. is truly the global outlier when it comes to health care. And this predates Obamacare, but it's certainly not got any better and slightly worse afterwards. Um, the average OECD country, and the OECD is essentially the developed wealthy nations, so mainly Western Europe mm -hmm. um, and, and the U.S., uh, they spend on average about 11% of GDP, 10, 10 to 11% of GDP on, on health yeah. Okay. And it's a mix. So you have the UK and Spain, the government um, basically taxes people and then provides essentially the hospitals and this is essentially the, the taxation is the form of insurance payment. Sure. You then have like the full other extreme, which is essentially like Belgium and Switzerland, where the government makes sure that everyone's subsidized and 100% coverage, but the private sector provides the insurance and the, the medical care. And then you have a mixed model like France, right? So they're from that, that continuum of sort of pure government to pure markets, but they all achieve 100% coverage, and they all do that spending 70% less. The U.S. spends 17.5% of GDP on healthcare, which is crazy. And How just long have we been at that number, though? So it has been rising, and it's risen essentially over the last uh, two and a half, three decades. Um, so it was much lower before that. But basically what you have 17 is... 17.5% versus... 10%, yeah. 11% in Europe, in o o OECD. Yeah, so the, if you look at the U.S. insurance and healthcare market, it's basically, it couldn't be worse uh, if you try to design a sort of badly designed system. Uh, you have concentration, monopolies, and oligopolies at every level. So 90% of urban hospital markets are highly concentrated. And uh, economists have a way of looking at that. They call it the HHI, which is the um, Hirschman-Herfindahl Index. And basically what it does is it, it looks at if you had 100 
companies competing, each one with 1% market share, and you squared all those numbers, you'd end up with you know, 100, right? So um, one times one times, mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. sum them. Yep. If you have one company that has 100% market share and square that, you get 10,000. And so then you can just quickly start looking at that number. Almost all the hospital numbers, basically when you get to like four players with 25% market share, that's like a highly concentrated. So 90% of the US hospital markets essentially is above that 2,500, that highly concentrated market. So if you have uh, pain in your chest right now and go to a hospital, you're not gonna sit and start haggling about what you're gonna pay, right? And so what happens is hospitals have uh, you know, uh, a, a tremendous power over the purchaser. Uh, they're generally exempt from fair pricing laws. They're generally exempt from um, antitrust under the McCarran-Ferguson Act. They're supervised by the state level. So you have like concentration at the hospital level. You have all sorts of horrible things going on in terms of FDA and drug approval. So there have been some cases of merger to monopoly where basically you had two companies that could provide a medicine where one buys the other and now of course you again have a monopoly in patents or effectively a legal mm -hmm. monopoly mm -hmm. that has a finite period of time. You have cases where companies have bought out their generic competitors or even paid them exclusionary payments. And so that's why drug prices cost so much more uh, in the US than they do in the rest of the world. Um, and it's not just like a few bad actors in the drug uh, space. And then you have middlemen in the US system. So in theory, these middlemen were created a long time ago to uh, provide some uh, bargaining power to hospitals, right? So if, if I had a hospital and you had a hospital, we want to make sure that we're essentially um, you know, not overpaying for goods. They created group purchasing organizations. But over time, these uh, GPOs essentially um, got exempted from anti-kickback uh, provisions, and they, they then have no uh, reason to sort of look after the hospitals who they were meant to initially look after to get better deals for, and now they just want to drive as wide a wedge as possible between the person selling the goods sure, and the hospitals. You have the same thing with pharma benefit managers, mm -hmm. drug wholesalers. So you have like this Byzantine sort of layer cake, you know, of uh, organizations in the U.S. healthcare system. So, so let me ask you this: Why are we paying seven and a half percent more? So, what um, is it? Is it we're getting incredible service, like you're in the waiting room area, someone's massaging your feet, telling you how amazing you are, and you're having a glass of wine before you see the doctor? Why are we paying seventy-five percent more? No, so the, the sh this is truly shocking. The U.S. has actually seen a deterioration over the last three years in uh, lifespan in the U.S. Right? Some of this comes from opioids. Did you say lifespan has deteriorated in the last three years? Yeah, yeah, mortality rates. Um, so some of this is due to opioids. More Americans are dying earlier and younger. Um, again, a lot of companies are making money off of this. Uh, more people have died from opioids than died in the AIDS epidemic in the U.S. Um, to, to great profit by some companies. Um, and at the same time, you know, you, you have uh, obviously worse lifestyle in terms of living and eating. But at the same time, it's not like there's better service. The U.S. has slightly better care in some sp specific areas. Obviously, we're in Texas right now, and you have the MD Anderson Clinic, which is mm -hmm. pretty good for cancers. But in general, Americans have worse outcomes, longer waiting uh, than other countries that in theory are more uh, sort of socialist or socialized medicine. So Americans spend more and get less for it and don't achieve universal coverage, whereas these other countries um, do achieve 100% uh, coverage you of the population. Well, it's a priority, right? And the problem here is that uh, for even Obamacare, by the way, left 26 million Americans uncovered, right? So it didn't uh, provide universal care. Um, there is a very strong lobby. So that's 17.5% to, to you and me is a cost, uh, but there's someone actually getting paid that, right? And so you have uh, the insurance sector, hospitals, hospital administrators, drug companies, pharma benefit managers. They benefit from that, and obviously they have an interest in making sure that you don't end up with uh, genuine reform.
So why don't we go back and, and just think the audience today is a sixth grader, okay? What is a monopoly? What is a duopoly? What is an oligopoly? Certainly. So uh, a monopoly is where you have one seller of goods. Um, so for example, uh, in the old days at the peak, uh, Standard Oil was the one company that sold uh, oil and gasoline in the United States. It didn't last very long and it got broken up in 1911. A duopoly is a, is a case where you have two companies essentially controlling the market. So for example, an industry that say duopoly would be uh, Airbus and Boeing. They, they make the very, very big jets, right? There's only two companies that really mm -hmm. do that. Quite a, there's quite a lot more competition among these sort of smaller body jets, uh, but it just costs a lot to build a massive, massive factory and do years and years of R&D and testing and so on. You also have a duopoly when it comes to credit rating agencies. That is an unnatural monopoly where you have Moody's and S&P by law are the only companies essentially that are, have these certain designations and uh, RSROs. Oligopoly is where you have essentially generally three or more, and it's generally perceived to be less than six. So you have like four, three, four, five players dominating the market. Um, four is the, the technical uh, level generally actually on the HHI. Um, but basically, for example, oligopolies, um, you are, there, there are quite a lot of those in many, many different uh, industries in, in the United States. And, and unfortunately, because we've had merger wave after merger wave, many oligopolies turn into duopolies. So the beer industry used to have four or five player, major players, and now it's down to two effectively when you look at uh, AB InBev and um, Molson Coors. But like making beer has not really changed over the last couple thousand years. You know, and we're, we're still, the sort of modern beer essentially comes from Northern Europe and Belgium and that's not really changed very much. And so you've had this explosion of craft brewers at the same time as the entire sort of distribution is really controlled by the top two companies. What, what is oligopoly? How many companies makes it oligopoly? So generally it's about four, um, but Got there's it. a lot of research, and I, I point this out in the book, that shows that when you get below six players in an industry, you get uh, price increases. So for example, the airline- Below six? Yeah, so the airline industry in the US has four major airlines, mm -hmm. right? And th that merger wave happened um, uh, under uh, Obama, and uh, they, they were approved, and what happened immediately was air, air prices started, airfares started going up, and you started then getting hit with all the additional charges for bags and for everything else. And so when you get below six players, you end up with price increases, and that's, that's what you see getting down to sort of uh, four and three. And the other big problem is that once you end up in the oligopoly, uh, duopoly situation, um, it's very easy for firms to collude on price. So, th th so for example, uh, if you and I were running two companies and wanted to screw the consumer, you and I could go meet in a, you know, in a, in a bar and in a, a smoke-filled room was in the old days was what they called it, and we would just agree that we're going to charge customers more and not, comp not really compete with each other, right? Like, we're happy with your market share and I'm happy with my market share and let's just not, com competition is bad for us. Do you think that still happens today? Uh, massively. So I go through dozens and dozens of examples. So you think Pepsi and Coke have that? Yeah, so th but this is what's fascinating. It would be a duopoly, right? Yeah, yeah. Pepsi and Coke would be a duopoly. So yeah, if you look at the soft drink market in the U.S., it's effectively a, a, a duopoly. Uh, you, you essentially have a duopoly in the chocolate market between uh, Mars and Hershey, so there are quite a lot. Some of these, I think, are not bad in the sense that, for example, there's no government uh, mandating that people need to go buy Hershey or Mars, right? They just basically have pretty good distribution and people are pretty conservative in terms of what kind of chocolates they take. People don't generally are not very adventurous in terms of buying new, new brands. But where I find it horrible is like on the insurance side, that is uh, due to regulation. Um, uh, rating agencies, you know, which gave us all the subprime bonds that they rated as being AAA, um, that's due to regulation. Um, but basically, some of these companies don't even need to speak to each other um, to collude on prices. And so uh, they're- What do you mean by that? 
So, th for example, if I just observe what you're doing, right, and this is game theory, so there's a, a chapter in the book where it points out that um, the, the longer, the more you interact with uh, someone else, and there's a classic um, uh, a prisoner's dilemma in game theory, right? So let's say that you and I are both robbing a bank. Okay. Um, and then the police come and arrest us, they put you in one cell and they put me in another cell. And then they ask us, like, so, you know, did you do that with him? Now, we both have a very strong incentive to reach a deal with the police. Well, we have an incentive to not rat on each other, right? But then I don't know whether you're gonna rat on me and you don't know whether I'm gonna rat on you, right? So I have an incentive to rat on you, cooperate with the police, get a better time deal for myself, you know, and you're not really not my problem. You have the same incentive. So the question is, of course, like, are we gonna rat on each other or not? And that's prisoner's dilemma in economics. And there are many, many problems in life that you can look at through that lens, right? Like, do you cooperate, i.e. we don't rat on each other, or do you defect and, and do that? And so what they found is that the uh, fewer players you have in an industry, the, more e the easier it is to reach some sort of understanding. And then if you can play that game again and again, where I get to see, are you raising your prices or not? Are you increasing your capacity or not? And I can see what your pricing today is, right? Hmm. Then it leads people to uh, change prices. Yeah. So with Americans spend vastly more for insulin than any other country in the world, right, uh, on a per patient basis. There are basically two companies that make uh, insulin, and they all raise their prices in lockstep, as if like they called each other on the day and raised insulin prices, right? Now you'd think that would be illegal, right? Because price fixing is per se illegal, but they're just—it's just you know parallel pricing. They're just watching what the other one's doing. There's nothing illegal about that, and that's the way it is in most industries. And so that's one of the big problems with having so little competition. So, so to you, you know, you hear a lot of different definitions of liberal means something else in America than it does in Europe, like you and I were talking about earlier, right? What does capitalism mean to you? Just the word capitalism. Certainly. So uh, the, the liberal one is a fascinating one. I will answer the capitalism one. Like uh, Americans use the term liberal to mean like someone who's left-leaning, right? Mm -hmm. Someone who, you know, particularly when it comes to social policy. To Europeans, the word liberal essentially is like a classical liberal, meaning in the sense of uh, wanting freedom. So up until the tw early 20th century, Americans thought of someone who was liberal as someone who's like freedom-loving. Um, but with capitalism, I think it, it means different things to different people. But in general, if you look at almost all the different dictionaries and economic dictionaries, um, it, it has a couple central elements. The first one is uh, private property, right? So communism defines itself in opposition to private property, where the state controls the property, and anything that the state doesn't want to control might be your private property if the state allows you to have that, right? You know, things that you have mm -hmm, in your house. Mm -hmm. After 1989, with the fall of the Berlin Wall, basically the battle for private property was won, right? So now, you know, pretty much universally besides North Korea, it's accepted that private property is, is the, the way forward. The other elements of capitalism involve essentially competition and freedom of exchange, right? And so it, what we're seeing more and more is that there's less competition in many industries. And uh, as I mentioned, much of this is uh, unnatural, meaning there are very strong uh, regulatory barriers to entry, excessive regulation, which keeps out startups. So the competition element is, is dying in many areas where, you know, uh, believe it or not, um, there are only two companies that make um, IV drug solution in the U.S., right? And they both had their manufacturing facilities in Puerto Rico. And so when Hurricane Maria hit, there were shortages of IV drug solution in the U.S., which is just salt and water, right? But that's because it's very, very hard to get uh, go through the entire FDA approval process. Same thing for drugs. So um, the competition element of capitalism is missing in many different areas of the economy. So you, I'm listening to you and trying to see how your brain is wired going through all this stuff. And I look, think about your upbringing and what you were raised. Your family had a company, they, I think it was called Betel or something. Oh, yeah, it's a charity, uh, charity working with heroin addicts. Heroin addicts. So you grew up, your friends were heroin addicts, HIV positive. 
folks that didn't have a long, you know, long time to live. How was that for you, and how did that impact your way of thinking today? So uh, my family story is uh, fairly odd in some ways. My parents uh, were Christian missionaries or Presbyterians. Um, but my father, before he became a missionary, uh, studied economics at Cambridge. That was back in the 60s when uh, 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 Keynes and uh, his, dis well, not Keynes, but rather his disciples were still teaching there. And so like, that was a, a great place to study economics. Afterwards, he went to Harvard Business School, got his MBA. So I remember my early lessons in economics were going to McDonald's in 1986 with him. I was 10 years old. And my grandparents would send me like a $20 check every year um, as, a, as a gift. And at the time, the dollar was swinging around in value quite a lot. And I remember like my uh, check was worth about half as much that it, as it was two years earlier. And so I, I, my father was explaining uh, exchange rates to me, and he was explaining um, purchasing power parity and how, you know, and The Economist that year came out with the Big Mac index. 86, how old are you at 86? At uh, 10. Your dad's talking about you, this kind of stuff at 10 years old. Yeah, and he would draw diagrams on napkins. Wow. And so I then became very, very fascinated with economics. But my parents uh, ran the drug rehab center, and the drug rehab center itself is almost entirely free. I'm sorry, it is entirely free, but it generates almost all of the uh, revenue to run through businesses. So the addicts themselves run uh, secondhand furniture stores, uh, secondhand clothing stores. Uh, I used to work in my summer times uh, in high school on the, with the painting team. So we'd go around Madrid painting mm. apartments. And so all of this was essentially a business that was done to deliver a, a, a good, essentially a charitable service to people. And so it's a, a Christian drug center, which obviously is motivated by the ideals of you know, the Sermon on the Mount. And my, my parents don't view, didn't view and don't view uh, any incompatibility between essentially markets, i.e. running businesses, and doing good with that money. So, but how was it for you as a kid, being around it? Like, like, two, like just as somebody sees somebody says, he's HIV positive. Maybe they have a certain way of looking at him afterwards, right? Oh, you know, this person's an heroin addict. How do you look at somebody like that being around it for so many years? So I think that uh, people's childhoods uh, only appear odd or different, I think, like, in retrospect, when you start meeting other people who don't have a childhood like yours, right? And so when I was very young, I just, like, you know, I thought that, was like, my childhood yeah. is normal. And it was only, like, later in, in high school, and particularly college, where I realized that most people didn't grow up in a drug rehab center. Uh, so almost my parents worked with heroin addicts, and Spain had the biggest uh, drug problem in Europe when it came to heroin, but it also had the biggest... Um, HIV problem. So most of the people were sharing needles, particularly in jail where you might have one needle to be shared with 200 men. Um, and so that's how AIDS uh, spread very quickly. And uh, almost all of the early uh, addicts in the program uh, died of AIDS and they were essentially like older brothers and older sisters to me and my brothers. And so my, my brothers and I spent like the evenings uh, going to Ramon y Cajal Hospital, which was the biggest hospital in Madrid, um, to the infectious diseases ward up on the eighth floor. And you know, it, it really did, uh, I think from a young age, uh, make me think a lot more about life and death. Um, you know, and my own brother died when I was 15. So I think it really focuses the mind and makes you realize that uh, you know, life itself is very precious. And, uh, you know, yeah, it sort of makes you grow up, I think, a lot faster. <laughs> you brought your brother that at 15? Yes, yeah, so it was a, a car accident. How old were you? Uh, sorry, he was 10, I was 15. So How, how was that going through it as a 10-year-old? As a so I think that uh, losing someone is obviously always very painful, but I think it's particularly more so when these are like the formative years of your life where you're still sort of figuring out who you are as a person and your personality being formed. Um, so, you know, it, it uh, made me uh, a lot more uh, pensive and thoughtful and, and pr probably just uh, sort of focus on my studies. 
Um, and my parents, uh, you know, would read to us from like, you know, as early as I can remember at the dinner table. So the kinds of books that my parents read to us was uh, C.S. Lewis's A Grief Observed. And I think that what you find, what I find often is speaking to people is that people don't necessarily always talk very much about uh, grief or bereavement. Um, you know, many people have lost other people. I'm not the only person who's lost a loved one. Um, but often it, it's obviously so painful that people don't tend to talk about it very much. And, you know, it, it certainly marks you as, as a person. Well, did, did, did that bring the family closer? I mean, it sounds like your family is a very close, tight uh, family. Lots, lots of uh, values and principles that was built on. So I think that, uh, yes, over time it did. Uh, in the very short run, you know, uh, everyone responds to trauma and grief uh, differently. Um, and there's a very good organization in the United States called uh, Compassionate Friends, where they put people in touch with each other who have, who have lost mm -hmm. loved ones. Yep. So my mother was uh, talking to other mothers in the U.S. who, you know, corresponding with them. And, you know, it, it does create quite a lot of uh, tension and stress in the family, you know, when you, when you lose a loved one because everyone just reacts slightly differently. And also, you know, it, you don't necessarily talk very much. But we, you know, we're very, very close as a family. My older uh, brother, David, and my brother, Peter, um, is still in very, very close uh, touch with. Uh, my mother died a couple years ago, but my father still runs the drug rehab center. Um, you know, it's, that started in... 85, we arrived in 83 in Spain, and the drug center headquarters is still in Madrid. My father still runs it, and I think he said that he wants to die working, and uh, I hope he does, um, you know, meaning like he can keep on working no, until of the course, very yeah. end. Yeah. Um, I think that would be like, you know, I, I hope I can keep on working, you know, doing what I enjoy, but he's cer certainly doing quite a lot of good. So 85 years old, he started it. You were nine. 86, he's talking to you about economics. Yeah. And telling you what's taking place with the $20 really being only worth 10 bucks while you're going to McDonald's. So, were you raised, was your relationship in a way where you guys had deep conversations at a young, was it like, you know, at the, you, you read stories about Charlie Munger, right? Yeah. And they interviewed the kids and they said every night dad would tell us stories about somebody who made a very big mistake that cost them everything, right? What was that, you know, dinner table like with the family? Yes, um, uh, I think... Because uh, if I'm not mistaken, both Peter and David, all of you guys went to Oxford, right? Yes. I mean, all of you graduated from Oxford. I mean, that's yes. like not... You know, hey, you know, I got three kids. I went to Oxford University. That's somebody did something right raising the, the kids. Uh, yes, I think my, well, I think my parents th did an extraordinary job. Uh, the funny thing is, I didn't necessarily like it all very much when I was a kid. Um, so you know, we had because our of discipline, or because like the structure. Well, there was quite a lot of discipline, but also it was more that you know, like w when you're sort of six or seven years old, and your father's reading uh, Saint Augustine's The City of God to you at the <laughs> dinner table, right? Like it, it appears pretty tedious and yeah. boring, right? And it's only like years and years later that you come back and think like, oh, okay, you know, I've been exposed to all these sure, great yeah. books and ideas. Um, I remember like, you know, some of my early childhood memories are um, my parents would read not only at the dinner table, we would then go back to go to, to sleep. And my father would read Robinson Crusoe or the Song of Roland to us. And so we were like, getting all these great works of literature. And then my father read loads and loads of uh, theology and philosophy. My, my mother, From uh, all of course. Walks, like all over? Yeah, so like, both of my brothers ended up studying theology at Oxford, right? And so, you know, it was very heavily exposed was uh, to that. Was it majorly inspired by C.S. Lewis? Was it like... Oh, uh, so they read Lewis everything of C.S. Lewis to us. Um, they're basically... Yeah, my, my, my parents, like, if, I mean, if you think of, like, every night of your life that you could uh, have something read to you, like, they covered an enormous uh, amount. And so I think that, you know, and my, my father was telling me about his childhood. He was remembering his uh, father, who I sadly didn't get to know very well because I grew up abroad, so I didn't see him. He, he lived in uh, Los Angeles and New York. But, like, you know, he was a genius. Uh, during World War II, they were giving IQ tests to people. He had 152 IQ. So he was teaching, um, like, mathematics, the artillery uh, people. 
But uh, you know, he and then he went into the transistor business after the war. Um, you know, when essentially they invented the transistor at Bell Labs. And, but he he remembers his father reading uh, Bullfinch's mythology to him when he was a little kid and U.S. history books. So I, you know, I, I think for like a- anyone who w- watches this program, you know. I, I would say, like you probably underestimate the ability to you have to influence your own children in terms of you know how you want them to be and how you want to shape their mind. And you know while they might complain a little, as I did, certainly my brothers and I would sure, complain yeah. after dinner. But like you know these are the kinds of things that you just don't forget. Unbelievable reading. We had an incident this past week about that uh, at our house, and I told my nanny, I said, no more TV. I'm taking the remote control away. We're reading. These kids have to read more, and so. It was a big, she's like, what do you want me to do? You mean to tell me we can't have the remote to watch Netflix? Nope, give me the remote. No more Netflix. We, we didn't have a TV until 1984. I was eight years old. And the only reason we got it was because my parents wanted to watch the 1984 Los Angeles Olympics. Um, and then after that, we could only watch like a movie on a Saturday Get uh, for years. Yeah. So who were you in high school? By the way? If I was in high school with you, who were you? Uh, so I, I was uh, very, very uh, nerdy and, uh, and slightly proud of it. My, I had a couple of friends who were also very nerdy. And we were just I like, never read. You know, I uh, thought you were like the you know, lady killer. You were the athlete. You were, no? No, I, like, I was, I've always been in pretty good shape. My father was a New York State wrestling champion. And so my father w- would uh, get us to do uh, pull-ups and push-ups and things. But like, we would just read n- nonstop. And, and, in, and in high school, it was time, pretty. Way, I hope you realize this. Because, I mean, if I'm raised in a family and I'm reading Crusoe and C. C.S. Lewis every night, my brain goes, another father's throwing a football or throwing a baseball or you're playing hockey outside. It's a different environment, different muscles being built. Uh, yeah, so like my older brother, David, taught himself uh, calculus and trigonometry in high school. Taught himself? Yeah, so my grandfather would send books. Pretty normal, you know, just teach yourself calculus. <laughs> Well, that was the good thing. Uh, so at the time, uh, one of the, the formative uh, sort of ep- episodes in my life was, um, was my parents were missionaries. And because of that, uh, the, the churches from the U.S. would send money. And not every year were they getting the same amount of money, particularly with exchange rates. They weren't always getting the same amount and translated into pesetas. Uh, but my, my parents didn't have enough to send us to school for t- two years. So my mother taught us at home. And, it was through, and I was obviously very embarrassed not to be able to go to school with my, my friends. But I learned that I could teach myself anything if I had the books. And then like once you figure that out in life, it's extraordinarily liberating. Powerful. Yeah. And so Powerful. I got my brother when he went to said. college to send me his college textbooks. And so then I was able to skip about two years of college in terms of the advanced placement tests yeah. and the various tests. Um, because like he was sending me his college chemistry textbooks, he was sending me his college economics textbooks, uh, you know, and so, and I think that's the most powerful thing for you know, particularly for younger people, like you can teach yourself anything if you set your mind so to. Are you married or single? Uh, single. So, what do you look for? Like you go on dates, you got you got a girlfriend, you got. You I do know. indeed. Okay, so say you're in high school, like say you're in college, like. What did you do? Did a girl you date have to also be brilliant like you? Because the con- what's the conversation going to be? What do you want to do? I want to go have a cup of well, coffee. I, like, was it like you have to go deep? Oh no, I was I was like pretty bad in general at talking to well, talking to anyone. But you know, it certainly doesn't make it easier when you're talking to women. You know, who you well, know, you're ner- nervous your around. Mind? Like, what entertains your thought? Like, I mean, you, I bet you got to talk to somebody that's also entertaining at your level of thinking. Well, I think. Well, I mean, it's not like I'm that uh, sort of. Interesting or, or brilliant relative to the average person. I think everyone has things that make them interesting and fascinating. Um, I think that the, the first time I really felt uh, that I connected was when I was at Oxford, and that was meeting very, very interesting people. And I thought, 
I, in, in, in undergrad and then in high school, I'd always want to like stay at home and read. And there I thought, actually, I want to go out. You know, I want to go out to dinner with them, you know, have a glass of wine, mm -hmm, chat mm -hmm. all evening, and I'm going to learn something. And so some of my friends there, you know, uh, thank God I'm still in touch with and have w wonderful friendships. But like, they read different things than I do. They study in different areas than I do. And so, you know, listening to a friend who's an oncologist or a friend who's a linguist, uh, you know, or whatever that subject is, I always learn an enormous amount from them. And so I try to do less talking and let them do the talking and ask a lot of questions. I don't always succeed and what people your, have gotten after me. What does your girlfriend do, by the way, for work? I'm just uh, Financial research. Okay, that makes sense. <laughs> so, uh, bizarrely <laughs> met through uh, Twitter. That makes Seriously? Yeah. You met through Twitter? Well, I think it's so Twitter. Is that why getting you back to Facebook and you stayed on Twitter? Because Twitter is uh, more. Uh, yeah, so I think Facebook essentially allows you to connect with existing friends, right? You're not generally making new friends. Um, and, you know, Facebook is good for some people. Um, you know, it allows them to connect with distant relatives or friends. But I found that there are two main drivers of social media presence. One is uh, voyeurism, I, what's my friend doing, I want to watch. Mm -hmm. uh, and the other is exhibitionism, which is look how well I'm doing. And so that really does feed a lot of social media. I think Twitter in general is much more about ideas. So you have like, you know, journalists use it quite a lot, people to follow the mm -hmm. news. Mm -hmm. um, in finance Twitter, you're discussing stocks or uh, the economy. And so you end up meeting people who you uh, don't know in the real world, um, but are sh sharing your similar interests. And so in a way, like the, with finance, I've ended up connecting with people all over the world. Um, and it's true, uh, blogging as well, but blogging has sort of been dying out and people have moved to, to Twitter. But I think Twitter is very much interest-based in the way that the internet essentially itself was made, you know, where you had these message boards and people connected around ideas and topics on message boards. So uh, uh, let's get into you sold your company Demotix to uh, uh, my, uh, a company owned by uh, Bill Gates. I think yes. it was Microsoft that bought Demotix, right? Uh, no, so he Bill Gates owned Corbis. Corbis, yeah. yeah Corbis. So you had uh, basically you had Getty Images and uh, Corbis were essentially a duopoly when it came to um, the sort of image libraries, mm -hmm. and they they themselves had bought very big uh, archives and libraries like the Bettman Archive and so on. And uh, at, at the time, basically, you, you, and then on the news side, you had sort of AFP, Reuters, and AP, and doing the news photographs. Mm -hmm. So it, it, being a startup in the, uh, that industry, it was very, very difficult to uh, sell your, your images, particularly when some of the bigger news organizations have essentially like an, an all-you-can-eat uh, you know, photos from the big players. And we were doing news, uh, so like it's much easier if you're selling, you know, stock photos uh, because you don't. There's no credibility attached to a photo of a pelican. On the other hand, what we were trying to do was to take user-generated news photographs. So, for example, you know, you're of uh, Iranian background, but our big moment was extraordinary, where they had the Iranian election, the uh, sort of green mm -hmm. revolution. Mm -hmm. It was 2008, and uh, they had locked up all the Reuters photographers in Iran. Um, and, and all the foreign photographers. The Iranian students were uploading, because we were taking user-generated news photos, so any Iranian with a camera could take a picture and upload it to our website. And so we were getting all the photographs of what was happening in Tehran. How did they find out about you? So we were getting in touch with quite a lot of uh, people. So anyone who's a freelancer, people in who- In Iran? Yeah, so like the university had loads of student journalists. 
Um, and but how do you find them? How did you contact them? So we, we had quite a lot of uh, people working with us in London, uh, part-time, some of them full-time. We had uh, one, one guy, yeah, so one guy, uh, he wasn't actually Iranian, but he spoke um, Dari, which you know, is very, very similar. And, um, but he was in touch with a lot of them, and they, they were getting the, the photographs to us. But I realized like, our, our business was uh, close to doomed when we were getting the main photos out to like, the Western uh, press uh, at the time, and then Michael Jackson died two or three days later, and then no one cared. And then it was basically wall to wall with Mac Michael Jackson pictures. And it took me back to a conversation that um, Turi, my uh, Turi Munti, my dear business partner and friend, uh, we went to uh, Harvard and um, met Ethan Zuckerman. And at the time, he was very involved in uh, essentially bringing sort of foreign bloggers to uh, sort of highlighting their work. And he said, look, the problem with your business, I'll tell you what it is. He said, you want to bring news about Iran or Uganda or some interesting place around the world to the average American? He goes, well, there are more searches for Britney Spears this year, he said, than there are for Uganda. He goes, no one actually cares. And unfortunately, he was right. So, you know, people prefer to sort of Google and search for uh, Kim Kardashian or, um, you know, uh, Britney Spears. And I think Ed Turi and I, uh, realize that voyeurism exhibitionism drives it, we probably would have created an Instagram and allowed people to put filters on their photos. Yeah, it would have made you a, a lot more money, huh? Didn't, yeah. Didn't but still, what was it like getting a check from Bill Gates, knowing, hey, you, could, you, you, you got something on your resume, now you sold the company to Bill Gates? So it, it, we didn't become very wealthy doing it. Uh, we basically uh, you know, returned some cash to investors. The main thing that I felt, and I, I think Terry probably too, is like just a huge sense of relief. You know, which is like you, you have this idea from nothing, you take it to something, you and build it up. And then you have employees that you have to look after, you have your shareholders you have to look after. And so like, I think people don't generally appreciate the pressures and stresses that go on entrepreneurs, right? Like, um, you know, basically, I think doing a startup, it's like getting married in a way. Like, Turi and I spent, you know, more time together than anyone did. Probably, uh, you know, he was married at the time. Uh, he saw me more often than he saw his family, you know, his, his wife and kids. And, uh, you know, you, you really are pouring your life into it. So it was a sense of relief to, you know, just be able to know that it was going to be uh, passed on into good hands. So uh, you say, you know, the whole myth about capitalism, monopolies, and death of competition, you said capitalism without competition is not capitalism, right? And so I remember being at a Harvard OPM program, owner, president, management program, and one of the guys from Brazil got up and he said, you know, I'm having a hard time uh, losing market share because there's this new business that keeps coming out uh, in Brazil and they taking, you know, it was 2% now, it's 3% now, it's 6% now, it's 8% now, it's 12%. What do I do to prevent this from happening? And it was the funniest thing that somebody from South America in a country that's not very regulated, he says, who do you know that's running for something? And he says, well, I know somebody that's running for something in my country. How close are you to him? What does he need from you? Can you give him some funding? And you have him come out with a new regulation that prevents the newer guys to come up so the barrier to enter is tougher to compete against you, right? So are you, are you saying, are you suggesting or uh, uh, thinking that some of this is taking place because the bigger companies are saying, hey, let me go get some lobbyists, let me go get some new regulations, let me go get some uh, guy that needs some money and hopefully in return he comes out with new laws that hurts everybody else to compete with me and I still stay strong and in a way I can have my own monopoly or duopoly. Are you seeing that taking place where competition is going away? Uh, absolutely. So I think that th there's a chapter in the book where uh, we point out that 
the more regulated a sector is, generally the higher de the degree of concentration. And when firms have a lot of power, they can influence laws and make sure that the laws uh, help them and keep people out. And this is what leads to essentially cronyism, where uh, you have a revolving door where people go from companies to government to the regulator and back. Um, and it leads to making sure that uh, regulations are enacted that protect them. So if you think of the U.S. banking uh, sector, for years, you had the Glass-Steagall Act. That was 35 pages. And uh, you know, there were hundreds of new banks that were started um, after Glass-Steagall, which was in the 1930s. After the financial crisis, you had the Dodd-Frank Act. And that was 2,200 pages with thousands of more pages essentially delegated to rule writing committees. And it was nicknamed the Accountant and Lawyer Full Employment Act uh, because almost no one had read it, no one knew how to understand it, and you had to go hire the guys who wrote it mm -hmm. to mediate it. And the problem with that is that basically in the last decade, we've had almost no new banks in the U.S. So, you know, what your Brazilian friend is talking about is that extensive regulation keeps businesses and competitors out. And so I think the, the issue is not that you want to sort of just purely deregulate. Obviously, none of us want to have, you know, poison or lead in the water. But what we need is sensible regulation, one that is done on the basis of principles. It's very simple, very clear, rather than extensive rule-based regulation, which essentially uh, inhibits startups and competition. And so you find this as well in Europe. If the hedge fund industry, for example, and the investment fund industry has gotten much, much more regulated, um, and it means that the top 100 hedge funds in Europe control about 90% of the assets. So the more regulation you get... Top 100? Yeah. So, for example, in the old days... You and had, you say that's better if it's top 100? No, no, no. I th well, I mean, hedge fund is a very fragmented industry, but the problem is, like, Steve Cohen or David Einhorn, all these, like, hedge fund yeah. legends from the 90s started out with $6, 10000000 million. So you can't do that nowadays. You know, it's very, very hard. Um, it's the cost of compliance, the cost of, uh, you know, just complying with all what's, the regulations. What's the right amount of competition, though? How many companies is it good to have good, healthy competition? You're saying four isn't enough. Uh, y you want it to be, you're, 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 you're uh, 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 saying that it's better to be what in the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s. Oh no, I mean, it's I mean, so a good number. Uh, there's no ideal number, and obviously, every the the structure of every industry is dictated by the economics of the industry, right? So, for example. Um, in the old days, you had loads and loads of um, microchip manufacturers. Um, that's, there, there are fewer nowadays because the complexity is much, much higher and the capital costs of making microchips is much higher. Mm -hmm. Nowadays, many of the microchip companies are what's known as fabless, meaning that they don't have the factory or the fab. They design them and they hand them over to, for example, TSMC, which is the uh, Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Corporation, and essentially they then make them, right? But it's like the, this, it's so expensive to make a factory that makes the, the microchips. And the same thing we were talking earlier about sort of the very, very large-bodied uh, jets with Boeing or Airbus. So those are industries, or Visa, you know, which we have everyone on the same payment system. But there are many other industries that are highly competitive. If you, th if you think of, for example, the restaurant industry, right? You could drive out and find hundreds. And so some industries uh, should have very high degrees of competition. You know, they basically, there are n almost no barriers to entry. People have many different tastes and preferences. And it's just a natural part of the economy to see some churn. And so if you... I, I mean, I remember uh, being at Harvard and we read a case uh, uh, study about uh, Coca-Cola and Pepsi, where to open up one bottling company is $75 million of what you need. And these guys have a ton all over the world. So somebody that's coming in, you don't even know if I get one bottle, say I need 10 of them. That's $750 million to want to compete. So, you know, in some of these industries, you can't really compete for some folks. So what do you do with it? Are you saying, you know, some companies like the whole idea would want to go original founders of Facebook saying we got to, you know, uh, uh, break apart, you know, not break apart, what's the word they're using? Yeah, break up uh, uh, Facebook and Google, do you break up, you know, 
Coca-Cola and well, uh, Pepsi and some of these companies as well? So what's quite interesting is, uh, so uh, Chris Hughes this week talked about breaking Facebook up. Yeah. And uh, you know, one thing that we've not really talked about on in, in this uh, program is essentially the history of antitrust in terms of, one, how did we get here? And uh, you know, uh, and, uh, breaking companies up is essentially a, a potential remedy. In the past, uh, mergers were not allowed, right? So there's a very long period of time where you could not buy your direct competitor. And so, uh, but starting in the early 1980s, the Justice Department under Reagan, uh, uh, Baxter was running the um, antitrust department. Basically, uh, the antitrust division essentially within the Justice Department uh, made the, uh, the hurdles for buying a competitor uh, much, uh, much lower, right? And so you could then have much higher concentration ratios to go purchase people. If you think of the World Cup, you know, for sort of uh, foreigners, or you think of the Sweet 16 for Americans, you get these brackets where you're 16, 8, mm-hmm, and you start mm-hmm. going down. And so if you fast forward almost 40 years to today from the early 80s, what you've had is you've gone sort of, you know, from 16 to 8 to 4, and you're basically getting down to very, very few players. In the past, those mergers would have been blocked. Um, nowadays, they happen. So if Facebook was allowed to buy a direct competitor in an area that they were already dominating, Something which like was WhatsApp social. Or Instagram? Exactly. So in the, in the past, that kind of acquisition would not have gone through. So you, Google, for example. Rule, you couldn't have, you shouldn't have been allowed them to buy it. Right. So I think it's very simple. If, if you're in an industry you know, where you're gonna go below six players, you shouldn't be able to do it. You could grow organically. So let's say you're the most amazing company ever at doing um, social and reach 100% market share. Okay, great. But you shouldn't be able to get to 100% by buying your competitors who are gonna compete with you. And so uh, Google, for example, uh, completely dominated search, still does, um, but they bought DoubleClick, which dominated display Mm -hmm. advertising, Mm -hmm. right? And so we now have a duopoly in uh, online advertising between Facebook and Google. And much of this is due uh, to the acquisitions being allowed. And so I think, and Senator Warren's talking about this, we're gonna see an increased push to break up these companies. So mergers that should not have happened uh, would be uh, broken up, um, possibly in the future. Yeah, I saw you in your book, you talk about Google commands 90% of search market, okay? Facebook rules 80% of social traffic, Amazon has 75% of book sales, and 43% of e-commerce. So would you, in your cat, would you categorize those companies as a monopoly? Well, there's no question that they're monopolies. There's no question those three companies are monopolies. Well, on the Facebook and Google, definitely. Uh, Amazon has uh, what business strategists would refer to as a high relative market share. So while it's only 43% of e-commerce, the next player you know, is, is less than uh, a fourth or a fifth of their size, closer to a fifth. Um, so that's a very high relative market share. The, the big problem with Amazon is slightly different in the sense that th- they have AWS, which is wildly profitable, and so they can then use the profit uh, from AWS to subsidize their sort of last mile delivery on the e-commerce side. But they also are highly conflicted where about half of Amazon's sales come from third-party sellers. So not Amazon, but rather people are selling mm-hmm. their goods on the Amazon platform. They can, of course, uh, discriminate against uh, the sellers in favor of their own goods. They can see what's selling very well and then cut the person out by going straight to the manufacturer. And there's, so there's all kinds of things that Amazon can do anti-competitively having that dominant position. Um, what's funny is Peter Thiel said, and I agree with him, that uh, companies that are true monopolists tend to deny it. And uh, companies that uh, don't have much strength tend to sort of boast a bit too much about their uh, dominant position. So who else would you put in the monopoly category? I, I mean, there, there are loads. Basically, one of the ways that you can get a monopoly uh, easily is essentially to control something that doesn't travel well, right? And that has uh, uh, often um, 
natural monopoly characteristics, right? So you, all your local cable companies in the U.S. are local monopolies, right? You, there's almost no choice in the U.S. Local monopolies. Yeah. You, you, so while it appears that there's competition, sure. you have you know f four cable companies. Um, actually, at the, at the local level, you, you know, you, if you want to get cable or you want to get high-speed internet, which is delivered via cable, mm -hmm. good luck to you, right? Like there's one company you're going to buy that from, right? They have tremendous pricing power. Uh, John Malone, who's one of the greatest investors ever and who's done a lot of uh, cable investing, said that cable essentially is now a monopoly, right? They own the last mile. So even if you're switching to Netflix, right, and don't want you know some of the content that you're going to get on cable, you're still paying sort of you know uh, charter or whoever it might be to deliver that uh, to you. Yeah, exactly. Um, you often have uh, monopolies when it comes to waste delivery, right? So, for example, uh, or uh, cement and aggregates. Those are also local monopolies that happen. Um, it's just not efficient. That, How do you address that? So, you know, because uh, 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 if you look at uh, the stat about 1970, 60% of Fortune 500 companies from 1970 are no longer around, right? 60% of Fortune 500 companies from 1970 are no longer around. And a big part of that is competition. Somebody said, I think I can come out and do it better than them. So I got a question for you. Nobody thought for the longest time Sears was going to lose or Kmart was going to lose. When Kmart first got started in 1962, uh, uh, I think was called the Super Center year. 1962, Target got started, Kmart got started, Walmart got started, right? After five years, Kmart has 250 stores because they had more investors. Walmart only has nine stores. That's Kmart versus Walmart, right? Today, Kmart's out of business. Walmart's in business, right? And Walmart employs 2.3 million employees worldwide. They're number one yeah. employers worldwide. I think I have 1.6 million in the U.S., 700,000 outside of the U.S. So do you believe someone is going to come and do better than Facebook or Amazon or uh, Google and take that marketplace from them? Or you're saying... There's nobody that can compete with Google, no. Facebook, or Amazon. So uh, there's quite a few uh, sort of interesting ideas uh, in, in what you just said. So I'll try, try to like, talk about them in turn. So the first one, when it comes to technology, um, but Warren Buffett talks about moats. And essentially, moat is a barrier to entry. And so the, uh, there's a, a venture capitalist uh, in S Silicon Valley. Uh, it's... Um, uh, Benedict Evans, and he said basically people don't tend to sort of get over your moat, they just go around it. And so what often happens to people who lead in technology is not that someone comes and directly attacks the castle or the, gets over the moat, rather it's just that like a new technological paradigm emerges and then they're, they're left behind. Um, while that is true in many areas, um, you know, people forget that Microsoft essentially has had a do has dominated desktop since the early 80s, right? So um, IBM for decades uh, dominated essentially sort of the um, larger mainframe computers. So even though you do end up with different paradigms emerging, these can often last decades. You know, particularly we have very strong feedback. Is that a bad thing? Uh, I certainly think it is. If you think about um, innovation, and uh, you know, basically, it was only when uh, IBM uh, settled with the government, it was an uh, antitrust suit that you ended up with software being split from hardware, right? We wouldn't have sort of the modern computer age, really, in a way, if software hadn't been completely divorced from hardware. Um, also, believe it or not, Google itself would not exist if antitrust hadn't limited Microsoft. Microsoft had tremendous power controlling the desktop. And uh, where do you think Google would be today if Microsoft had used Internet Explorer to default to MSN Search and not allowed uh, people to pick Google? versus MSN search in, their, you know, in the mm -hmm, top mm -hmm. box. So 
antitrust in many ways uh, is, has been very useful essentially for uh, making sure there is a level playing field. Um, how, how different is antitrust and non-compete? Does, does it play this similar role except at different levels? So antitrust broadly is meant to make sure that company, the very big companies are not behaving in anti-competitive ways, that they're not tying, i.e. for example, because I'm dominant and I want to sell you product A, right. I'm going to make sure, make you buy product B. That's what happens often. Um, you know, or, or for example, that they deny people access to essentially essential services and rather than provide them on a sort of a fair, open, non-discriminatory way. That's what a lot of antitrust is uh, about and preventing mergers um, that are un un uncompetitive, even though, by, by the way, the FTC and the DOJ do, do nothing. I, I call them uh, aggressive do-nothingism is their strategy. Non-competes limit competition on the worker side. So believe it or not, about one-fifth of American workers are covered by non-competes. And interestingly and paradoxically, the non-competes tend to happen in industries that are not highly concentrated. So in industries that are highly concentrated, there's not much need to use non-competes because they're the only buyer of labor and their competitors often collude with them, right? So there have been cases where there was like a, an industrial parts company where there were two companies that uh, provided the parts and they both just reached an agreement that they weren't going to poach each other's engineers, right? And so there are loads of these cases where companies collude. So they didn't even need to have a non-compete because the two companies were just talking to each other. What happens in the U.S. is that, uh, for example, fast food restaurants are highly competitive. You know, you, you just drive down the highway and you see sign after sign after sign of fast food restaurants. So the way that they become essentially less competitive is by forcing their workers to sign non-competes. And so this is changing now that there is more uh, they, press they, they and pressure. Force, they, they enforce their workers to sign non-competes yeah, like at fast food restaurants? Yeah, they tell them like, okay, I won't hire you unless you sign this, the contract for employment. And part of that contract for employment is one, that you will not uh, go work for a competitor for a certain period of time. Uh, also, they who have... This? Can you name, like McDonald's does this? Uh, when you say fast food, who... who so, the, the, uh, uh, so for example, ones that have discontinued it, there was like uh, Jack in the Box, there was uh, quite a lot of the... Um, Burger King franchise, basically almost any of the big ones you can think of. So if I worked at Burger King, there was a non-compete that I couldn't go work for McDonald's? Uh, many of these have these, or they have it within that. So, for example, like you have Burger King, which is the the company, yes. and then you have franchisees, I've never heard right? Of this. And I worked at Burger King. That's what I'm okay. asking. Okay. No. So most people, believe it or not, I'm not blaming you for not reading your contract, but most people don't actually read their contracts. No doubt about it. Absolutely. And so, so I'm just curious. the I was average person, 15 years old, 16 well, years old, the average person uh, should read their employment contract. They will so, find, among other things, so that they're putting non-competes on 16-year-olds. So, so moving away from Burger King, by the way, I believe they're not doing it right now. But in general, a lot of the fast food restaurants have had, and, ha and many still have, non-competes. Uh, and believe it or not, there was a woman who was a janitor um, working It was a, 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 in a New England building. And uh, the, the uh, contract for that cleaning of the building went to another company. Mm. That company then hired her because she knew the building well and they wanted to keep her. And she lived locally. So her employer sued her for non-compete for cleaning a building. So, um, you know, in, in general, in law, there was something called the sort of uh, janitor test, where basically a non-compete should only really apply to CEOs, people who are highly skilled sure. and know what they're doing in terms of like to have technical know-how of the business. Um, and if a janitor was covered, it was deemed to be too broad. And the idea that literally a janitor was being covered by a non-compete, you know, under the sort of janitor test, tells you just how crazy the situation has gotten. Once that received public attention, they ended up dropping the suit against the janitor. But you can see that there's a reason why wages aren't going up when people f feel that they're going to be sued by their employer. And by the is? way, it's, it is true that in most of the U.S., non-competes are not enforceable, right? 
But the average person does not know that. And furthermore, the average person doesn't have the wherewithal. In most states, they're not enforceable? Yes. Isn't it a few states like California, Montana, one of the Dakotas? No. And well, because in most of them, basically, uh, non-compete has to have three essential elements, which is, um, one, it has to be like a limited in time. You, you can't have a five-year non-compete, generally. It has to be limited in scope, i.e., you worked at this restaurant or this company and in a 10-mile radius or whatever, you can't go work beyond that, right? And it has to be reasonable in terms. And so most of these don't fit that, right? They're sort of too long, they're too broad, you know, and they, they don't cover any specific know-how. Um, so most of them are not, not enforceable. The average person doesn't know that. And, but the other part of these agreements for employment that's a problem is that most people sign away their statutory rights to join class action lawsuits and subject themselves to mandatory arbitration. And so most mandatory arbitration cases are resolved in the company's favor, not in the worker's favor. Um, and by not signing up to uh, or being able to sign up to class action suits, it then means that if a company is wronging a thousand people, they can't actually band together. And so it makes no sense for any one person to pursue a claim because they just don't have the financial wherewithal. Whereas if you actually were able to enter a class action lawsuit, you know, you could pool your resources. I, I mean, I, I can see how that can affect the small percentage. I don't know if that's the reason why uh, uh, income, median income, median income just hit what? 61,000? They, they just reported that the number's the highest it's been in so a while. It's not, it's not the only reason, but, but put a few things together. One together. of the put, put a few things together. By the way, right? I agree with you on a non-compete non side. It's so interesting you say this because two days ago, one of the guys, Mario, uh, uh, I'm walking with the guys, the guy that I had asked the question, where he said, so Patrick, you left and started your own insurance company, okay? And you were with another company. I was with Morgan Stanley, then Trans, and I left and I started PHP and I had a massive lawsuit. A $400 billion company sued us. I've been sued one time, that was a time. We settled eight months later, nine months later. He said, what do you do if somebody wants to leave you and be your competitor? How do you handle that? I said, it's very simple. The day I no longer take care of the company and the people in the company, they deserve the right to go out there and compete against me. If we don't, that's how it should be, right? But you're saying non-competes are hurting the marketplace because that's preventing other people to compete with uh, the former uh, company that they were a part of, which makes sense. And I, by the way, I also understand protecting the company's privacy and trade secrets and some of those things because that is leaving as well. So you can't just say, hey, here you go and go do this. Although Elon Musk recently talked about the fact that he gave the code open source to you know Tesla mm -hmm. and he doesn't have no problem. Somebody does it better than me, go out there. And that's pure capitalism based on what you're saying. There's a part in your book where you talk about Buffett. I want to read this where you said the Warren Buffett does not like competition. He believes it limits a company's ability to raise prices. Interesting. He prefers investing in monopolies, but absent a monopoly, Buffett's second best choices are in sectors with a limited amount of competitors. And then you continue to say that Buffett shares this view with the Silicon Valley mogul Peter Thiel, which you mentioned earlier, Peter Thiel, founder of PayPal who has invented, in the monopo invested into the monopoly Facebook and declared capitalism and competition are opposites. Some investment gurus or, or even economists have gotten on bandwagon and recognized the monopolies as an enlightened form of capitalism. So are you saying Buffett likes investing in monopolies? Well, that's un undoubtedly true. Um, if you look at uh, much of his investing recently, it's been in uh, regulated utilities, which are complete monopolies, essentially at the local level for power um, in, in the U.S. Midwest. Uh, if you look at, he's bought, for example, a company called uh, Verisign, which is an absurd company. Basically, uh, they, you know, like the URL for your website or for any website gets assigned, and uh, that's uh, established by uh, ICANN, which is the international um, 
sort of body that regulates the giving of addresses. But it's a government-run monopoly. They have 60% operating margins. And VeriSign essentially is a monopoly when it comes to handing out uh, addresses, right? Mm -hmm. Like, there, there should be a dozen companies doing it, and it should be absurdly cheap to do, right? So they just raise, have tremendous pricing power, getting back to what Buffett does. Um, when you look at Moody's, right, he's owned that for years. Uh, Moody's is part of a duopoly. And I could go <laughs> name company after company after company that Buffett's owned. Um, many of these, as I mentioned earlier, I think are unnatural monopolies, meaning that they only exist due to legislative uh, acts or regulatory uh, sort of red tape. If you, th Peter Thiel is slightly different. So Peter Thiel in his book talks about the beauty of monopolies, but it's quite clear that every single example he gives in the book it comes from uh, essentially network effects, right, where these are natural monopolies, where, for example, uh, social networks tend to have uh, n network effects. Everyone wants to be on the network where their friends are. You don't want to be on 12 different networks. Uh, Visa or payment systems, he started PayPal, have network effects. So all of Thiel's examples essentially come from industries that are naturally monopolistic. He does not talk about uh, all the ones like in the U.S. healthcare system that are unnatural ones. He doesn't really talk about Moody's or VeriSign. And uh, I would bet money that if you asked him to, about all the other ones, he, he would say that you need to essentially um, de deregulate to have competition in sectors, you know, where there shouldn't be a barrier to entry. Um, you know, and he tends to invest in companies that are software as a service where you end up with a very strong uh, sort of feedback loop, you know, where you essentially you have, you build a platform and more people can build apps or things on it. He's looking for sort of natural network effects and feedback loops. He's not really, Teal has done no investing in, for example, like, you know, the, the U.S. Uh, healthcare market or insurance market, which are, I, I view as unnatural monopolies. Like, you and I could probably set up a better insurance company if we could sell across state lines, and, you know, it's very, very difficult to do that. These are all very, uh, insurance has one of the highest levels of lobbying in the U.S., so would you say uh, a Buffett buys companies after they are on track to be in a monopoly or a duopoly? So yeah, so he bought the airlines after. After that happens. So, so uh, interesting, when you look at uh, uh, regulations, one side of the aisle politically over-regulates, the other side of the aisle deregulates. Your regulation, deregulation, right? I think that that... Uh, it's, it's easy to sort of see it that way. Um, I think that generally there's very little difference when it comes to Republicans and Democrats, when it comes, when it comes to, to regulation. regulation or even antitrust. If you look at sort of antitrust under uh, Clinton, George W., um, Obama, basically there was almost no real uh, change at all from one president to the other. Generally, people look after their uh, corporate donors. That's, uh, so, so let me ask you, so would, would a Buffett be for a candidate that that is willing to help regulate to you know uh, uh, make it more difficult for the barrier to enter would he be more for that uh, so I would bet you money that if a candidate ran on the premise of making it uh, getting rid of the NRSRO designation which protects Moody's market share um, Buffett would not be thrilled with that and probably wouldn't be wouldn't want to donate wouldn't want to donate for that yeah. candidate. You know, I, there, there are plenty of businesses that he owns that would uh, disappear pretty quickly if there was a change in regulation. I mean, think about this. Moody's and S&P have close to 90% share globally. There's like some very small ones in Europe um, that, that rate. But um, there, there's no reason why, like, you know, particularly nowadays with a lot of bright people, quants and computers, that you couldn't develop better ratings for companies, right? I mean, they've done lots of studies, you know, where 
looking at um, CDS spreads uh, and uh, credit spreads essentially do a better job of predicting bankruptcy than Moody's and S&P, right? Mm -hmm. But they're paid. Every single person who wants to issue a bond has to pay Moody's and S&P. And so how is it that this duopoly persists, right? It's uh, regulation. And Buffett himself in the Financial Crisis Commission, when they went and interviewed him afterwards, um, so th they, they asked him why he owned uh, Dun & Bradstreet. They're like, did you go meet the management? He's like, no, I didn't. He said, I just realized that they essentially had a monopoly, right? If he you want to get paid by he the government. Yeah, yeah. So David Diane, who's a very interesting journalist, uh, D-A-Y-E-N, that's where he started writing about Buffett as a monopolist when he read that. And what's fascinating is that um, Dun & Bradstreet effectively is, you, can't, you couldn't get paid for, and I think you still can't get paid by the U.S. government unless you have hmm. a small business number given to you by Dun & Bradstreet, right? So these kinds of uh, regulatory or legislative uh, fiat uh, create that, that monopoly. So you know, a lot of the problem that I write about in the book comes from sort of government regulation and laws that essentially protect uh, specific companies. So a monopoly doesn't happen without the help of the government. Is that fair to say? I would say in general, yes, because if there are barriers to if, if you eliminate the re regulatory barriers to entry, generally people will want to come in and compete. Now, there's some industries, as I mentioned, you know, in the case of Visa or Boeing, that the industry structure itself makes it difficult. But in general, yes, you, people will come in and, and compete. So, so let's just say if I'm a candidate, hypothetically, if I'm a candidate, and if I want Buffett support and endorsement, I'm just throwing a name out there. Let's just say if I want Thiel's support and endorsement. Cuban, give me some of these names that are, you know, name names. Bloomberg, you know, Dalio, whatever these names are, that are billionaires, you know, successful. Um, would I ask them where they have help or figure out where they need help and say, hey, I'll be able to help you out in this area because is there some of that? Are you, no, that, that are seems you insinuating that, that there no. might be some of that taking no, place? No, no, I think that okay. that's, yeah, that's I, fairly... that's what you're saying. Well, no, so I think that's fairly crude. I think it's much more uh, subtle than that, right? Um, you know, it, the, the U.S. is not Nigeria. You don't end up with, uh, you know, suitcases with cash. Uh, no, I'm not cash. saying cash. I'm not saying cash. Yeah. That's not what well, I'm I mean, about. there's not even like an explicit quid pro quo, right? But like, for example, do you, do you, you think like that you would uh, be, as a candidate, be more likely to do something if you knew that you had to go get money from people, you know, who, like, would you piss off the cable industry? Would you go piss off, you know, uh, Google? And if you look the at the, the revolving today, door... pissed off everybody. He pissed off everybody. Okay, so Trump's, Trump's, this is a very good example. Trump is a fascinating case where he, on the campaign trail, said that he was going to do a lot more to go after monopolies and that there would be fewer mergers approved. And, you know, so everyone thought, okay, well, maybe Trump's going to be different than Clinton and Obama. But w what happened? The people that he appointed, essentially, and the people running his transition team were people who had gone through the revolving door working for as a lawyer for Google at the FTC, and basically nothing changed, right? So Trump talks a good game, it's gonna be different than Obama, but actually when you look at it, the revolving door is pretty strong mm -hmm. and there's no change. The guy running the FTC right now seems like a good guy, he's not, I mean, not a bad guy, but ultimately he's gone through the revolving door multiple times representing corporate clients that wanna merge, right? So there's not much of a change. And I think that it's Nassim Taleb, the writer who wrote um, you know, The Black Swan, mm -hmm. he refers to it as the uh, retrospective bribe, meaning that you're not going to do anything overtly to piss off people that might one day hire you. And I think the campaigns uh, work the same way, right? Where you're just, there's, uh, you naturally don't do things that might upset people who are going to write you checks. You don't upset, but I'm saying, do you uh, uh, help and support the need of a regulation that they need? That's what I'm saying. Because you know a lot of times like, well, we should minimize taxes. 
Okay, mm. so someone's like, I'd like to see uh, uh, raise taxes. I don't think I'm paying enough taxes. You know how what Buffett says, I don't think I'm paying enough taxes. I think I should be paying more taxes. I don't know if you heard him say that. He yeah. says that over and over and over again. Okay, so let's just say you raise my taxes. Fine. What is more valuable to me? A regulation that eliminates a competitor or you raising 5% on taxes for me? I'd much rather take a, you know what I'm saying? A, a <laughs> regulation that eliminates a competitor that gives me 12% market share of this guy that now cannot compete against me versus 5% raising taxes. You give me the regulation any day of the week over the taxes. Do you think those conversations happen or no? Well, uh, if, if you, I mean, I have the quotes in, in the book, and then there are many that happened after the book that I wish I could have included. But, uh, for example, a lot of the bank CEOs are thrilled by Dodd-Frank, right? Um, uh, it was uh, Jamie Dimon uh, and uh, the former CEO of Goldman Sachs said that it's like the golden age of banking with Dodd-Frank, right? So quite a lot of them do like the regulation that's happened and view it as being, uh, as protecting their industry. So I, I certainly think there's a very strong element of that, where people recognize that laws can keep out competitors. Yeah, I don't know if you saw the, the uh, uh, I think it was Yahoo Finance came out um, yesterday saying 70% 70 70 of economists say that uh, Trump is getting reelected with uh, what is taking place right now. It's going to be interesting because, you know, how that's going to affect uh, how, because, you know, he's going after Bezos a little bit. You're seeing what he's doing with Facebook and the conversations he's having with some of the guys being kicked off of Facebook and Twitter. He's having conversations with Dorsey. How do you foresee that taking, out, taking place? The, the economy and being reelected, or no, the tech regulation? Yeah, both of them. You know, how, how those go hand in hand? Because a part of him, he did say he's going to go after Bezos, and he's trying to give him a hard time, but nothing's really happened. I, well, I mean, I, I hate to talk about politics. It's not really something I have too much uh, interest in. It's more distaste. But I think Trump has the attention span of a mosquito. And so I genuinely think, like, you know, if he has a coffee in the morning, he'll, he'll probably do 20 tweets. I have no idea what he's going to be thinking he's by the far day the after tomorrow. President of all time, though, I got to tell you. Uh, if entertainment is what we pick presidents for, then may, that might be a good thing. I'm not really sure that's true. Um, but in terms of, I don't think as presidents before though. You know. Well, uh, unlike Trump, uh, Reagan had actually run California relatively well yeah. and had you know, for, been the head of the uh, sort of Screen Actors Guild and you know, had at a minimum been competent without multiple multi-billion dollar bankruptcies. But um, on the regulating the internet, I'm not certain that Trump's going to actually do anything about that. I think the much bigger danger to, or, or not danger, but uh, the much bigger changes that are going to happen uh, f to the Silicon Valley giants is going to come from essentially uh, the candidates like Senator Warren, um, or uh, you have uh, the uh, antitrust committee in the House of Representatives. You have David Cicilline and others, you know, who are looking into uh, the, the tech giants. And so I think that's probably where you're going to see some changes. I don't know why I visualize you having a beautiful, uh, uh, massive painting of Trump in your bedroom. It, it just—I kind of felt the love you have for the guy. I, I, I just felt it. It was a very uh, special moment. Well, I think independent of whatever someone thinks politically, whether you're left or right, yeah. I think the thing that I find troubling about uh, Trump is that in the past, people look to leaders to be uh, sort of men and women of good character, you know, people who you would want to emulate. And unfortunately, you know, particularly given sort of the household I, I grew up in, you know, it, Trump is essentially the antithesis of the um, qualities and virtues of the Sermon on the Mount, right? Um, and, you know, all the sort of good qualities that you would want for your children are, are, are qualities that are completely absent in Trump, you know, whether it's sort of uh, patience, kindness, lovingness, all these kinds of things. And the idea that sort of nastiness should be elevated um, you know, and be a quality that people aspire to, that they get off watching him fire people is something that I just truly don't understand. 
Yeah, so, so there's a part of that that I agree with. The, the other part of it for me is also at night when I pray with my kids and I talk to my kids about life, we talk about four things. Lead, respect, improve, love. It's four things we do as a family. And four things, if you're going to pray to God, courage, wisdom, tolerance, understanding. Ask for those four things, and I explain each one of them. But one other thing I talk about is we don't bully people, and we don't get bullied. And a part of what I like that he's doing is he's bullying the bully, which no one's been a bigger bully than these politicians that have been on for 20, 30, 40 years. And a lot of people play their game, <laughs> and he's just not playing their game, and he's bullying them. Mm-hmm. And I don't think they're used to that because they're typically used to bullying you and I. And we're kind of like, oh, my gosh, don't piss off the government because they may do an audit on me. They may do this. So we're kind of like, just say nice stuff. Don't say anything bad. Don't say what you believe politically. And he's kind of giving backbone a little bit to people that have been quiet for a long time, fearing everyone in the government. I think an element of that is not bad because it goes back to freedom of speech, not freedom of press and what they're saying, freedom of speech of what you and mm-hmm. I think about it. Having been a guy that raised in, you know, was raised in Iran, I did them in 10 years, and we were told as kids growing up, don't talk about your religion. My mom and dad, they're Christians, even though my mom was a communist, my dad was an imperialist, we were Christian. You can't tell your religion in school, all this other stuff. So, you know, from that perspective, to go into Germany, you're still afraid, because you're like, I don't even know if it's real. Are we still free? Then you come to US alone, or you can talk about what you're talking about. And in America, it's a business to make fun of the president. Whether it's Obama, you know, Will Ferrell doing Bush, it doesn't matter what it is, it's entertainment for it. But it's interesting perspective coming from you. Uh, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a fan of some of Milton Friedman's concepts. Are you a believer of some of his philosophies? Were you, because you mentioned him as well on what he said on, uh, uh, in 1960, uh, Milton Friedman took up the banner of free markets, demon government interference in commerce to be more damaging than helpful. What do you think about some of his philosophies? So I, I like a lot of what Milton Friedman's written. Um, I, you know, I do believe that free markets are far better than communism. You know, I, I think that he is a uh, sort of towering intellectual figure. Some people have uh, written that I don't like him. The area where I disagree with him significantly is on antitrust. And you know, early Friedman was in favor of antitrust, if you read his writing carefully. Uh, late Friedman wasn't. And uh, the problem that I have with essentially assuming that you're going to get new entrants competing, you know, which he thought pri- private markets will take care of themselves, so you don't want the government getting involved. The problem is when you have very high barriers to entry or high regulation, when you allow mergers with high barriers to entry, you're not going to get more competition. And so in a world where there's where ease of entry uh, is, uh, you know, you, you, you find that in every industry and there are no barriers, I'd be fine al- letting mergers. That, yeah, I would be fine allowing almost any mergers if... Uh, there were very few barriers to entry, and you didn't have massive regulation. You're saying he wasn't for having a, a few b- barriers of entry? No, what I'm saying is he didn't like overregulation either, right? But the no, problem he's not is, right? Guy, but the, yeah. the problem is, if you're in favor of mergers, right? Sure. Which he was towards the end of his life, right? Thinking the free market didn't take care of it. At the same time, he didn't seem to acknowledge the fact that regulation itself was a very high barrier to entry, and there were other barriers to entry that basically meant that you often wouldn't get competition. You wouldn't get new companies entering and competing with these old established companies. And so simply allowing firms to merge when there, you can't get a lot of competition is highly problematic. Um, if we had lower barriers to entry in many industries, I'd say, fine, you two merge, you know, get very big, someone's going to come in and eat your lunch tomorrow. But that just really doesn't happen. Are you saying merge or acquisition, or it's the same thing to you? You're oh, putting those yeah, two no, the, well, the it's always thing. like M and A. They're the same thing. I mean, it's right. how you structure it: whether Got one's it. company buying another, whether the merging is equals. Yeah, I, I'm asking that question because you talk about the fact that Google, Facebook, Amazon, Microsoft—they bought 436 companies for 31.6 billion dollars, and you know they're just buying, buying, mm-hmm. buying, buying more companies, right? But 
isn't like, think about yourself. You want to become an entrepreneur, you and your partner. You realize how difficult it is. It's hell. You're trying to keep your commitments. You're trying to get the money back to the investors. You're trying to pay your employees. You're trying to have a life. You're trying to get some rest, save your sanity, be able to have some fun, be able to have personal life. And you realize this thing about running a business is not as easy as I thought it was going to be. It's hell, right? And eventually you sell Demotix to Cor- is it Corbis or Corbis? Yeah, Corbis? And then they eventually send it to, is it CVG, SVG? Uh, yeah, so the, like uh, the Chinese v- Yeah, VCG, yeah. VCG, I, I uh, confused yeah, that. I, I stopped following them after we sold them, but I mean, some of my well, friends still work there. They sold them to them a year later after you, I think like 2011 was you and It was a couple years later. A couple yeah. years later, yeah. So isn't, if that's what you are not for mergers and acquisitions, you essentially allowed Microsoft to acquire your company, right? So. Well, yeah, so if you think about this from the entrepreneur standpoint, uh, and uh, in the case of the photo business, it's slightly different, but in the, t- the tech business, you really do depend on these platforms, right? So y- you really cannot exist um, w- without uh, using the services of the companies that are competing with you and basically decide whether you get to access y- your own audience, right? So, you know, you're in the fortunate position where, you know, you get lots of views through YouTube, but just imagine if you were competing with Google, right? They can demote you or downgrade you like there's all sorts of stuff Google can do to its competitors um, and you know they they do in fact uh, do that and I, I write all about that in, in yeah. the book Facebook for example decided that vine was competitive there are like loads of emails from Facebook by the way that are now in the public domain because the British um, Parliament has uh, released them they're part of a lawsuit but basically Facebook was very very calculating about who got access to what data on its platform and which ones they just shut out and so because these companies are dominant platforms, they basically can discriminate um, t- to developers and to potential uh, eventual competitors. And so I think that if we care about innovation and we care about competition, then it is a problem that these companies can do that. Yes, but you had the benefit of being able to have somebody acquire you. What's wrong with that happening to an entrepreneur? Oh, no, I have no problem with people getting some cash. I don't think it's a great system where the, the only way you're getting out is by selling to the competitor rather to the, the dominant company rather than competing. I mean, there's no dominant company bigger than Microsoft, and you know, you got $4 trillion company. The point I'm trying to make, I'm trying to think from the perspective of the entrepreneur, well, right? Because the entrepreneur's thinking this. Here's what the entrepreneur's thinking about. I think I can do it better. Okay, great, go do it. All right, so you go and you compete. You realize very quickly, you can't compete, right? For instance, I want to be, uh, I want to be Mr. Olympia. My dream was I want to get, go be Mr. Olympia. I was a bodybuilder in the Army. I'm 6'5", okay? My calves are like a toothpick. And no matter how much calf raises I did, donkey raises I did, my calves are my calves. And I looked at these guys in Mr. Olympia that were winning 5'8", 5'9", 5'10". That's the body. I'm talking to a good friend of mine, Phil Heath, who was a seven-time Mr. Olympia. He was 5'8". Five nine, and he wanted to go into the NBA. He was a great basketball player, but he realized to get in the league, you got to be about six one, six two. So he won Mr. Olympia. He won seven times. I said, I don't think Mr. Olympia is for me. I'm just not going to do bodybuilding because the chance of me winning as a six four, six five guy is slim, right? So I leave. I'd have to be off season four hundred pounds. So it was more of a logical decision that was made. Okay, no problem. You go into the business world. You say, man, I don't think I can make this. You fail. You lose your savings, your 401k, the house you finance, all that money is gone. You go back to getting a job and you have to take two, three, four, five years to clean house and come back to where you were at before. Or you go and you compete. You're like, I got a pretty good business. I'm going to make this a legacy business. I'll pass this down to my kids. I want my sons to work with me. I want them to do what I do. This will be awesome. We'll work together and uh, uh, generation to generation to generation. Or you build a business and say, somebody wants to cut a check to me. I like it. Microsoft's cutting a check. This person's cutting a check. So I can't sell to this guy now. 
Well, now I only have one buyer because the other buyer had, I could have some competition of buyers. Now I can do because of merger and acquisition. So I can see what Milton Friedman is thinking about. But the other part for me that I agree with what you're saying is the barrier to enter is when you make that extremely difficult to go in and compete, I mean, that's, that's, a, that's an additional edge a competitor's having that. How are you, how is somebody, so going back to the question I asked you well, earlier, I didn't hear the answer to the question I asked you earlier, I was actually really curious on what you were gonna say. Do you actually think someone can eventually beat a Facebook, a Google, an Amazon? Can someone go compete with those guys and beat them? Do you think eventually someone's gonna take over who they are today? Uh, so I think that there are certain things that could happen that uh, were, it would be possible to beat them. So for example, um, you know, voice is the next big technology, right? I think th they did completely dominate today's technology. And I think it's unlikely that they're gonna be beaten on, whether it's social networks, whether it's uh, search through mobile or the, the um, desktop. But there could be something new, meaning, for example, um, voice could be the thing, right? And Amazon is now doing this with Alexa. Mm -hmm. Or you could end up with uh, virtual reality could be a big thing, right? Now, they're all pursuing things in that area, right? But like that might be like a next field of computing. It's going to be something that we're not thinking about and something that is not really the way that we are today. I mean, if you think of within our own lifetimes, you know, I have like my mobile phone in my pocket. But, you know, you basically have these sort of massive transitions where you had essentially the mainframes in the 1970s, then you go to the PC, and then you go to the mobile, the dumb mobile, you know, and then you go to the smartphone. So you have these sort of uh, technological leaps uh, that change markets and different companies emerge with these new technologies, right? Where Microsoft emerged with the PC. The question is what are these new technologies and who's going to dominate those? So I think it's not, it's what Benedict Evans talked about, which is going around the moat, around the castle, rather than even attacking it. Um, I think it is possible that they might not be on the next big thing. So, you know, um, a, a threat to Google is obviously that if people really, if you get paid, Google gets paid for searches, generally product searches. If all product searches happen on Amazon, Amazon's arguably a much bigger threat than people realize to Google. Um, but those are the kinds of things that, that threaten them. a much bigger threat to Google than people think it is. Yeah, so 90% of the searches on Google essentially are not profitable, right? Now, they, they are profitable, of course, because like, if you're searching for Dallas weather, you know, you, you then think of, okay, Google gives me all my answers. I want to buy some sneakers. I need to go to Google and search for sneakers, right? Sure. Um, so, th but you wouldn't go there if they didn't also provide you universal answers, right? So you don't, you can't just split up useful from non-useful searches, right? Um, but I, I, th I think though that the, the big problem, of course, is that by having these platforms, you can essentially dictate the terms. So, you know, anyone who's, who's old enough probably remembers like Lotus Notes in the 1980s, mm -hmm. and you had competitors to things that were Microsoft Office. But Microsoft had the benefit of itself controlling the platform, calling the, uh, controlling the API calls. And so you can essentially make sure that the industry looks the way you want. But the fact that Google had uh, such a high market share in search meant that it was able to then introduce Chrome and it could make sure that its own websites didn't support other browsers, right? Um, you know, so you can uh, help shape the playing field to make sure that it favors you when you are a dominant company. Is that, is that one of the reasons why you say, you know, uh, your concerns are the existing laws were not uh, uh, written at a time where digital platforms were there, where, you know, we have to have different kind of laws that have to take in consideration into what we're dealing with digital? Well, I think that the, if you look at the pace of change, certainly the laws that govern the internet go back to uh, 1998. Um, and, you know, th that 20 years is a very, very long time uh, when it comes to te technology. 
and uh, it would be crazy not to update them. I mean, the, the companies basically uh, are not treated as media companies. They basically have no responsibility for what goes on on their on their site uh, on their sites, even though they do act like media companies and they curate content and uh, effectively edit it. So. Um, you know, th these companies basically have great power, and with great power comes no responsibility. With great power comes no, no response for them under the current system. Wow. What a thing to say. You typically hear with great power comes, you know, a lot of responsibility. You're saying no responsibility. Uh, pretty much, yeah. I mean, th they're, they're not responsible for anything that appears on their platform, even though, you know, they uh, do sort of pay for... Uh, content, even though they have algorithms that function as editors, right? Um, and so th they, are, they are effectively functioning like media organizations in many ways, but they, of course, don't want to be regulated as such, therefore they would deny that they're media organizations. Last, last question here. You know, this, this whole word of socialism is being thrown out everywhere. You're hearing it everywhere. AOC, Bernie Sanders, Bernie's running right now on a, you know, socialism, democratic socialist is what he calls himself, and AOC says, no, I'm just a socialist. She's just pretty open about it. And then, you know, you have Pelosi says that system's never going to work here. You know, Trump says what he says about socialism. What do you think about socialism, somebody that's into economy? So uh, socialism, uh, properly understood, effectively uh, goes back towards uh, Marxism, essentially. And if you look at it around the world, there are very, very few places that are properly socialist, right? The, when American politicians talk about socialism, what they're really talking about in general is social democracy, which is essentially is a lot of European left-leaning parties are social democrats. And so the social comes from that. And European social democrats are n not at all communist. They're basically, they like capitalism but want to tame it and sort of, you know, get rid of some of the things that they perceive to be bad. So I think that if you're looking at the kinds of uh, things that um, Sanders and others are promoting are essentially sort of left-leaning European platforms. They are not sort of North Korea, Venezuela, or even sort of, uh, you know, pre-89 uh, communist countries. And I think, that the, again, sort of uh, the, the term is being abused. It would be much more helpful if they said that they were social democrats to, you know, essentially said they're Europeans. But no, socialism itself is a failure, um, broadly wherever it's been uh, implemented. Um, whereas social democracy, which essentially is a Western European sort of left-leaning, you know, government uh, sort of stepping into free markets, you know, it's, it's a, you have some successful countries in Western Europe and some slightly less so, but, you know, broadly European social democrats are just uh, left-leaning, um, you know, slightly more state involvement um, than Americans might have. But again, like the word liberal <laughs> means different things in Europe mm -hmm. than it does yeah, in the that. U.S. So, so who, do you, who, who do you think got it right? Who do you think got it right as a president? Who was, uh, economically, who understood capitalism the best in the history of America? I think the, the, the post-war settlement, essentially, uh, if you look at like Eisenhower, uh, Truman, I think these were periods of time where they, they were very definitely, uh, sort of very strongly pro-capitalist, antitrust uh, was enforced. And I think that there was a view that the government itself was meant to look after the poor and needy and to make sure that markets functioned properly. I think the problem right now is that there's essentially a uh, left and right often there's sort of a very binary approach, which is either government can do no wrong 
or, go or any government involvement is wrong. And I think that the, the answer is obviously somewhere in between. Mm -hmm. And the, the question is trying to manage that uh, intelligently and effectively. And I think that if, particularly on the Republican and conservative side, historically the Republicans and conservatives were a party of antitrust. We're a party that wanted to make sure that competition flourished. And it really was only since in the 1980s that uh, that, that started uh, changing. But I think, you know, um, Eisenhower, uh, I, I go back to probably Eisenhower in terms of one of the, the people I think who, you know, found that balance relatively Eisenhower. relatively well. Well, not just him, but I mean, there were obviously Democratic presidents in the post-war period, which were pretty good too, right? You know, um, Reagan, I think, ha was a very useful counter to some of the problems in the 1970s, right? Carter. And uh, Yeah, and well, this is the funny thing about Carter. Carter gets a very, very bad rap. If you look at a lot of the deregulation that's credited to Reagan, a lot of that started under Carter, right? So, um, in, in terms of, you know, there was a very, very extensive regulation of, of railroads, of airlines, you know, in ways that made these uh, have higher prices, be less competitive. Um, a lot of these were essentially introduced um, under Carter. Very cool. I can talk about this concept of capitalism for a long time. You know, economy interests me a lot, especially since I haven't seen a lot of different things. Uh, where, can where can people find you? I know you're not on Facebook. If they go on Facebook looking for you, they're not going to find you. If it's a Jonathan Tepper, it's a different Jonathan Tepper, but you're on, you're on Twitter. Yes, so uh, jtepper2 uh, on, on Twitter uh, is uh, where I am, so number two, jtepper2. And then uh, I have a personal website, jonathan-tepper.com. Uh, the business uh, that I started, uh, Variant Perception, which does economic research, uh, variantperception.com. So, you know, if you work for a, a, uh, a bank or an asset manager or hedge fund, um, there's a lot of very high quality research there. Um, and that's sort of uh, where people can find me. And then, of course, The Myth of Capitalism, the book, um, love it or hate it, I hope it makes people think. Um, and that is available from any fine bookstore and even Amazon, which is a r relative monopolist. <laughs> so I highly, highly recommend you get this book. And the reason for it is because uh, I don't like to read books on capitalism just with people I agree with. I like to read capitalism, uh, uh, topic on capitalism from, like, there was a book called End of Capitalism. I read the book, I'm like, what is this? I mean, this was a depressing book when I read it. But I think it's a good book for somebody to read if this topic is uh, intriguing. If you're an entrepreneur, or business owner, executive, this is the kind of stuff you got to know because it allows you to kind of see what's happening out there with the blind spot. So we are going to leave the link to everything he talked about, Variant Perceptions his website, his Twitter account, and the link to Amazon to go buy his book, The Myth of Capitalism. Jonathan, thank you so much for coming out. Really enjoy spending time with you. Thank you, likewise. Yes, thank you. Thanks everybody for listening. And by the way, if you haven't already subscribed to Valuetainment on iTunes, please do so. Give us a five star, write a review if you haven't already. And if you have any questions for me that you may have, you can always find me on Snapchat, Instagram, Facebook, or YouTube. Just search my name, Patrick Bid David. And I actually do respond back when you snap me or send me a message on Instagram. With that being said, have a great day today. Take care everybody, bye-bye.